Mild to moderate kidney disease is associated with an increased risk for cardiovascular disease. 19 million United States adults are affected by chronic kidney disease, including more than 25% of the population aged 70 years and older. What is the burden of risk factors in this setting? Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, your host, and with me today is Dr. George Backris, the Director of the Hypertensive Diseases Unit in the Section of Endocrinology, Diabetes, and Metabolism at the University of Chicago Pritzker School of Medicine. Among his many professional duties, Dr. Backris is the editor of the American Journal of Nephrology. Welcome. Thank you. Nice to be here. Dr. Backris, please outline for us the risk factors that were discovered in the Framingham data set. The key factors in the Framingham data set were uh, the fact that for, for CKD, that is, being older, having a, um, a relatively greater obesity uh, burden than the general population, having a lower HDL, uh, an elevated cholesterol, and high triglycerides. In other words, the presence of the metabolic syndrome in older people, and, and of course, these factors are key cardiovascular risk factors, and also now we find contribute to development of CKD. Any others? Well, uh, as a matter of fact, hypertension, uh, which again goes along with the syndrome that I just described, and, and or the panoply of risk factors, if you will, that I just described, I think clearly contributes, and these people uh, have a much higher prevalence than people that have so-called optimal blood pressure control. And optimal meaning what? Well, defined as a, in the JNC7 as a 120. You know, blood pressure as a risk factor is linearly associated with the height of the systolic pressure. So the risk starts at 115 systolic and starts doubling for every 20 millimeter increase in systolic pressure. So going from 115 to 135, you'd say, well, gee, you're, you know, in the, in the reasonable range, you're, quote, controlled. But in fact, your risk is higher at 135 than it would be at 115. That, I think, is a kind of a sobering thought that one has to think about. Obviously, lipid-lowering therapy is really not a significant risk factor. I mean, people have uh, touted the statins, especially some of the more recent, more powerful, longer-acting statins, as being uh, nephrotoxic, and in fact, they're not. So that takes it out of the equation. And if you have diabetes... The key factor is aggressive glucose control. So if your hemoglobin A1C is less than 7, you're much less likely to develop kidney disease than if it's above 7. Now, you'd mentioned that low HDL is a risk factor. Is high LDL also? Yes, high LDL absolutely is a risk factor. And in fact, high LDL probably is a greater risk factor than low HDL. So again, that, that whole kind of abdominal obesity, hypertensive pre-diabetic kind of scenario or, or phenotype is the one that is going to give you the highest risk for developing kidney disease. So this is research, and obviously that's important, but, but what does this mean to the primary practitioner out there seeing patients in the real world? Well, I think what it means for them is, number one, they have to be aware of the fact that kidney disease is possible in many of their patients. So I think that's the first thing. I think, number two, they have to be aware of the fact that uh, they can have a huge impact in protecting against kidney disease by not only doing what they're supposed to be doing in terms of cardiovascular risk management, but also protecting the patient and educating them about non-steroidal agents and other specific agents uh, related to nephrotoxicity. 
So I think those are really key issues that really need to be looked at. So other than the non-steroidals, any other common medicines that we need to worry about in terms of their effect on the kidney? Yeah, very good. Uh, Many people get confused because they figure aspirin is in that same category. Low-dose aspirin, the the so-called 81-milligram pill that is given for cardiovascular protection, is not nephrotoxic. But if you're popping two regular aspirin every four hours for pain, that is clearly nephrotoxic. So it is kind of a a, a dosage burden, if you will, that one has to look at in terms of risk. The other thing is Tylenol. Now, many people think Tylenol is benign, but in fact, Tylenol, uh, which gets metabolized to phenacetin, clearly is a nephrotoxin if taken in very large quantities. So the people taking extra strength Tylenol 2 every four hours for pain, if they do that incessantly day in, day out for months, uh, certainly have a risk of nephrotoxicity as well. And would that be three grams, four grams? Well, that would be approaching four grams. You know, one of my pet peeves uh, as a psychiatrist is the general population thinks Tylenol PM for sleep is so benign. And of course, there's Tylenol in that Tylenol PM when when they're really after the PM, not really the Tylenol. And, you know, I I think um, many practitioners are naive about exactly how much Tylenol PM people actually take. And in my practice, it's not unusual to hear people when you ask, of course, if you don't ask, they won't tell you, taking six, seven, eight Tylenol PMs at night to get to sleep because, of course, uh, you develop rapid tolerance to the sedating effects of the Benadryl part of Tylenol PM. So make sure to ask people, well, how much do they really take? Right. Okay. So um, clearly it sounds like tighter blood pressure control can benefit the folks with kidney disease. Yep. And what about the effect of treating blood pressure on cardiovascular outcomes? Well, there's no question that uh, treating blood pressure will have huge benefits on cardiovascular risk reduction. And there, there have been many, many studies through the years looking back at large databases that clearly show that the lower your blood, achieved blood pressure uh, under treatment, the lower your cardiovascular risk. And so clearly when you're doing cardiovascular risk reduction, it shouldn't just be with a focus on protecting the kidney. Of course, the kidney will reap the benefits, but clearly it should be on reducing the risk of stroke, It should be, which is, by the way, totally linearly dependent on blood pressure level, as well as reducing the risk for myocardial infarction. Now, what about um, the blood glucose control? How does that affect the progression of nephropathy? Well, blood glucose control is another critical factor that does affect nephropathy and nephropathy progression. High amounts of glucose, the kidney is not used to having very high amounts of sugar floating around in the blood and needing to filter it. And so it starts damaging membranes in the kidney and it starts causing changes in the kidney where the kidney starts proliferating and it causes a whole host of reactions that really injure the kidney overall. And in fact, it's well known that if you have retinopathy, you have nephropathy, period. Mm. The high glucose affects the eye in an even more horrible way than it does the kidney. That's why blindness is very common with diabetes. But uh, there's no question if you can reduce blood sugar and get the hemoglobin A1C to levels below 7, you will markedly reduce albuminuria. You will markedly reduce uh, or preserve, if you will, kidney morphology and preserve kidney function over time. So it is very important. Now, on a relative basis, in someone with clear diabetic kidney disease, 
and and you have a choice, the patient says, I'm not going to do everything. I'll take your statin, but I'm not going to control blood sugar and blood pressure. So you have a choice. Well, if you give that kind of choice, then the answer is actually blood pressure, which will trump blood sugar. Now, all that means is that if you control blood pressure and lipids, you'll get better renal outcomes than controlling blood sugar with lipids. But, but if you control all three, you get the best of all possible outcomes. What that means is sugar should not be discounted as important. It's critically important, and you should strive to achieve it. But if you see the patient is failing, uh, you absolutely should be sure that blood pressure and blood lipids are well controlled. It sounds to me, again, I'm a psychiatrist, as you know, but the eye and the heart are connected to the kidneys? Uh, correct. So that our cardiologists and our ophthalmologists need to be aware of this as well. Absolutely. And, you know, what do you recommend in terms of monitoring for renal function in these patients? Well, I think the key a factor is that in the early stages, if they're just coming in for annual exams, then obviously a BUN creatinine and electrolytes, uh, along with a spot urine for an albumin uh, creatinine value, milligrams of albumin per gram creatinine, that, that's really all you need. Now, once you get uh, to the point where there's clear injury of the kidney, the creatinine now is maybe 1.1, 1.2, and many people will say, well, this guy's insane. That's normal. Well, it's actually not because, in fact, you need to look at estimated GFRs. And estimated GFRs, if you're ordering from very large laboratories like Quest or some other lab, uh, you will actually get back an estimated GFR along with the creatinine. But you can, by the way, you, if you're not getting it back, one of the things that you can do is there's a number of websites. You can go to the National Kidney Foundation website, www.kidney.org, or you can go to uh, the uh, NIDDK, the, N, uh, the National Institutes of Health website, or you can go to a very simple website, www.nephron.com, and simply put the creatinine in, and you need the sex, race, and age of the patient. You put those in, you hit enter, and you got yourself an estimated GFR. Oh. And estimated GFRs are validated with very high correlations with real GFR measurements in the range between 20 and 70 mLs per minute. So if the patient is anywhere in that range, that is, and, and the patient is stable, because this only works in an outpatient setting. It does not work in the hospital. So if the patient is stable and you have a very good reading, that is a very good indicator of what the real level of kidney function is. And that's really the number you need to be following. Now, um, again, as a psychiatrist, um, I've, I've only been getting the comprehensive metabolic panel. So I get a BUN and a creatinine, and, and my lab doesn't give me an estimated GFR. And actually, just yesterday, I saw a youngish woman in her late 30s with a creatinine of 1.1. Our lab, the reference goes up to 1. Right. So what should I do next, if anything? Well, if she has a creatinine of one, and unless she's a, a, a very large lady with a lot of muscle mass, then I wouldn't worry too much about it. But if she's a typical average-sized person... And she's actually very thin. Okay, if she's very thin, then I would certainly look at what the estimated GFR is. And frankly, if it's above 80, based on these calculations, if it's 85, 90, then I wouldn't worry too much about it. But if not, because one of the things, by the way, that can affect this is dehydration. And so if the patient hasn't been drinking a lot of fluid or uh, for whatever reason has been told to fast and they haven't had anything to drink in 24 hours, that certainly can affect this. The other thing is on creatinine, and this is another problem, 
is there's a laboratory error of about 0.1 milligram per deciliter. So if it's one day it's one, the next day it's 1.1, the next day it's 0.9, those are all the same within the same range. It's not that precise. Well, I decided just to repeat it. (laughs) Yeah, very good. Very good. Also known as punting. Absolutely. Well, no, no, because many times uh, there can be lab errors. There also, the patient may have gone out and actually drank a lot of fluid subsequently. You never know. Well, I knew that you were going to be on the show, so I thought I could get a <laughs> curbside consult and <laughs> go Very <from> good. <laughs> oh, too funny. Um, I want to thank our guest today, Dr. George Backris. We've been discussing cardiovascular disease risk factor burden in chronic kidney disease. I am Dr. Leslie Lunt. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, please send your emails to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.